Heavenly Father, we thank you for the immense privilege it is to be able to come before you and call you Father, that we are sons and daughters in your kingdom. And so, Lord, we ask for your blessing this morning as we listen to your voice. Lord, may we be attentive sons and daughters, and so may we be able to profit from this time this morning. May it not be a waste of our time to come before you and to hear from your word, but, Lord, may we put it into practice. And so we may be more like your son, Jesus Christ, as a result of listening to your word. And we pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. Well, we love to go to the zoo, my family and I these days. We have a zoo pass, and so we pop over there whenever we have a Saturday without anything on. That's one of the options that we have to do. And one of my favourite parts of the zoo is the snake Uh, section with the reptiles and I love to go in there and look at all the different snakes and one of my ideas for feedback for the zoo would be to have ratings on each of the snakes particularly venom ratings I think it'd be wonderful to be able to go along and see each snake and be able to see how poisonous that snake actually is and so you could have a rating from one to ten from one being not very poisonous at all to ten being absolutely lethal if you get bitten by this snake you will surely die and this is something that I've played around with because I know that in Australia we have some of the most venomous snakes in the world, that the snakes in Australia are pretty scary. If you see a snake in Australia, generally the best thing to do is run in the opposite direction. You do not go pick up snakes in Australia unless, of course, you know exactly what you're doing or you're a complete idiot. I think snakes are kind of interesting creatures, particularly because they have that ability to kill us. They have the ability to make us very, very sick. And I think that's a male thing, that we love to explore those things that make us scared. And this morning, we're coming to a chapter of the Bible, which I always found fascinating as a little boy, because, of course, it was about snakes as well. It is snakes that invade the the community of Israel while they're out in the desert. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, this incident that happens in Israelite history where snakes come into their community. And so we're going to trace that through and then look at how it applies to us today, what we can learn from this incident in Israelites in Israel's history in Numbers chapter 21. And so the first thing we need to understand if these snakes come into the community is, why did they come in? In Numbers 21, why did these snakes come into the community of Israel? And that brings me to my first main point this morning, My first main point, the Israelites sinned against God. The Israelites sinned against God. If you want to follow my main points this morning, they're listed there on the back of the church bulletin. And my first is, the Israelites sinned against God. This is the reason the snakes come into the community, is because the Israelites sin against God. How did the Israelites get to this point where they come to sinning against God? Well, in the Israelite history, they were in Egypt. They were rescued from Egypt by God doing a large number of miracles and sending plagues to Egypt so that the Egyptians let them go. And then they've been traveling through the desert. And at this point, we see that they then start to sin against God, in particular by grumbling against God. It's not been easy for them as they've been traveling through the desert. And at the moment, they're on their way to the promised land 
but they're having to go the long way round. They're having a hard journey. And we even see that in earlier in chapter 21 of Numbers. If you've got a black church Bible there, open it up to Numbers 21. But actually, it's earlier in Numbers chapter 20 that we see that the Israelites are having problems in their journey. One of the problems is that people are not letting them go on the easy paths uh, to the promised land. And that is shown for us in Numbers chapter 20, verse 20. They have been speaking to the Edomites, the king of Edom, and saying, can we go through your land uh, on the king's highway? And uh, and so they say uh, in verse 19 of chapter 20 of, X, of Numbers, the Israelites replied, we will go along the main road, and if we or our livestock drink any of your water, we will pay for it. We only want to pass through on foot, nothing else. And what do the Edomites say? Again, they answered, you must not, you may not pass through. Then Edom came out against them with a large and powerful army. Since Edom refused to lead the, let them go through their territory, Israel turned away from them. And so then when we go down to chapter 21, verse 4, we see that they're traveling from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. It's not easy for the Israelites. They're having to go the long way around. They were hoping to travel up the king's highway along the main road. But now they're having to be sidetracked because this large army has come out and threatened them. And so what do we see them doing then in verse 4? We see them getting impatient with God. Verse 4, it says, They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. These Israelites start to make accusations against God. And they're false accusations that they're making. They're lying about God and about Moses and his intentions for them. There's three ways that they accuse God falsely here. Firstly, we see in verse 5 that they accuse God of bringing them out of Egypt to die in the desert, it says there in verse 5. They say, God, you just wanted us out of Egypt so you could kill us off in the desert. We're going to perish out here in the desert. We're having to go a long way round. We can't go against the Edomites. Maybe the Edomites will come and kill us anyway. We are having real problems here. And the reason you brought us out here is to kill us in the desert. But that is not God's intention for the Israelites. He redeemed them from Egypt to bring them to the promised land, to a better place where they'd no longer be slaves in Egypt but instead be free people living in a wonderful land which with houses and property that they never actually built themselves, that they would be able to enjoy this wonderful land. That is what God has planned for them. But because of the journey on the way being difficult and hard, they are then starting to accuse God of not having their best interests at heart of not wanting to care for them, instead that God wants to kill them off. And that's a false accusation that they're making. That's number one. What else do they accuse God of doing? Well, they accuse God of not feeding them. They say there that there is no bread in verse 5. Now, this is a bit of a tricky issue to unravel because, of course, did they actually have bread in the desert? Bread, of course, being uh, something that you make with grain. And they obviously don't have fields out in the desert and they're making bread. 
But I think the NIV translation here may have misstepped a bit and that there actually is a better translation here. And I think that's even shown by the NIV translation itself. It says in verse 5, there is no bread. And the Hebrew word for bread, lechem, it can actually be translated food as well as bread. And the same Hebrew word occurs twice in this one verse. It occurs where the NIV has said, there is no bread. And then at the end of the verse, the same word occurs, but is translated the word food. Food. And if you look at the ESV, the English Standard uh, Version, it has food in both cases. It doesn't mention the word bread. And so I think we have to get that out of our mind, that they're complaining that they don't have grain to make bread. They're making a general complaint that they don't have any food. Now, is this true? Did the Israelites have no food in the desert? No. We know that they had food. God provided manna for them. This interesting thing that we don't really know what it was like. They tried to describe it. And the word manna actually means, what is it? And so they were actually looking at this thing on the ground and they called it, what is it? Do you want to eat some, what is it today? That's what manna actually is. And of course, they didn't just have that, which is kind of like a bread, and it was often referred to as a bread that God gave from heaven. They also had quail. God provided manna uh, for them, and that's from Exodus 16. You can see that God provides manna for them. And then God provides meat for them, because of course, the people grumble in Numbers 11 as well, that all they've got is manna. And so then God sends in meat for them. He says, I'm going to give you so much meat, it'll come out of your nostrils. And People go, how can he do this overnight, give us all this meat? And he just sends in these flocks of quail from the sea. And they come down all over the camp and people can eat quail. They have meat to eat as well. And so the people here, they're complaining that they don't have food. And even then, you see that they kind of backstep a little in their complaint against God in verse 5. They even start to admit that they have food, but their real complaint is they just don't like it. What do they say in verse 5? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. They were just saying we have no food. Now they're saying we do have food, but we just don't like the taste of it. We don't like manna, we don't like quail, we'd rather have some of the yummy things that we used to enjoy back in Egypt. And we see that in other parts of the um, numbers, that they complain and they actually give specifics about what food they remember that they had in Egypt and what they would like to eat now. Cucumber being one of the high ones on the list. Cucumber is one of those things that I can take or leave. But obviously for the Israelites, they kind of missed it. They're saying, we just don't like the food here. Firstly, they were saying, God, you haven't given us any food. Now they're even admitting that we do have food, we just don't like it. And so they're accusing God falsely by saying we don't have food, and they even admit that in their own speech. They're making false accusations against God, which of course is sin. What else do they accuse God of doing? Not giving them any water. Verse 5 says... There is no bread, there is no water. Did the Israelites have no water when they were wandering through the land, uh, through the desert, on their way to the promised land? No, we see repeatedly that God gives them water when they need water. We see that in uh, when they come to the waters of Marah, he makes them sweet instead of bitter. In Exodus 15 in their journey, you can see very early on that he makes water readily available for the people. And then he draws water from rock twice in Numbers 20, and also in Exodus 17. The people have water. 
they are just grumbling against God. They're being miserable. I mean, they're out in the desert. It's a hot place. And I'm not surprised that water becomes a bit of an issue. But God can provide water for them. And he does provide water for them. And so they're sinning against God when they complain, when they grumble against him as they're travelling through the desert. So what is God's response to these false accusations? Well, that brings us to the snakes. And my second main point, God punished the Israelites. God punished the Israelites. And we see that in verse 6 of Numbers 21, page 152 of the Black Church Bibles. Page 152, Numbers chapter 21, verse 6, we see God punish the people. It reads, Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. God doesn't let their grumbling go unpunished. He sends snakes in amongst the people. Now, snakes, you may say, are... Don't know what sort of snakes they were. Are they snakes that are going to hurt us? Is snakes a big problem? Some people eat snakes. I was actually talking to one member yesterday. She has eaten snakes. Um, snakes can be food for people. And so this might be God's way of answering their complaint. Is he sending snakes into so that they can have a feast on snake in the desert? No. What does it say to us? It says they sent venomous snakes in amongst the people. Another translation, and it's a very literal translation of the Hebrew, is fiery. They're fiery serpents, venomous ones, ones that make you burn if they get you. And it's not as though God sent in fiery serpents in amongst the people and the serpents just wriggled through and there was no problem. You know, God can prevent serpents from attacking us, even ones that are very dangerous. We see that with the Apostle Paul in Acts. He shakes off a serpent into fire and is unharmed. But what happens with these snakes when they come into the community? Verse 6, Then the Lord sent venomous, fiery snakes amongst them, and they bit the people. These are snakes that aren't friendly. These are snakes that want to hurt. I was reading up on snakes this week about Australian snakes, and apparently Australian snakes, generally speaking, they're very venomous, but snake bites are rare in this country because pretty much you've got to go and antagonise the snake a bit for it to attack you. Some snakes in the world, they love to go for people. And that's the kind of snake that we've got going on here for the Israelites. These snakes want to hurt the people, and so they bite them. And then we also read that these snakes are snakes that are venomous to the point of actual death. They're not snakes that bite. They're venomous. You swell up. You're out of it for a a few days, but then gradually you come back to life. No, no. We see here that in verse 6 it says, They bit the people and many Israelites died. This is punishment from God. He sends snakes. He sends snakes that are venomous. He sends snakes that are venomous and that bite. He sends snakes that are venomous, that bite, and that kill you. This is judgment from God for the sin of these people making false accusations against God. Now, is that the end of this event in the desert? Is that the end of the story? Well, no. We see that there is a way of salvation provided for these people from the judgment that is upon them. And that's my third main point this morning. God provided a way of salvation. God provided a way of salvation. We see a change of heart in the Israelites, firstly, for this way of salvation. What do we see in verse 7? We see the people come in repentance. Verse 7 says, The people came to Moses and said, We sinned 
when we spoke against the Lord and against you. They've recognised that they're sinners. They've recognised that they've done the wrong thing. And they're openly admitting it to Moses and God. They're saying, we've sinned against God. They're turning from their sin. They're acknowledging it was wrong, what they did. And then, what else do we see? We see them come and ask for forgiveness. We we read in verse 7. We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. They're asking for forgiveness. They're asking for the judgment to be removed. They want an intercessor. They want Moses, who is the good guy, to pray on their behalf and remove this judgment of snakes from their land and the judgment of death that is being poured out upon them. And then we see that God hears their request and provides a way of salvation. They come in repentance. They come trusting that God can forgive them and remove the judgment, and then, thankfully, God does in a rather unusual way. What is that way that he removes the judgment from them? Well, he provides an antidote for those who have been judged by these snakes. And we see that in verse 8. Verse 8 reads, The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. This is a very unusual way of providing anti-venom, but uh, that is something that we do know about with snakes. There is another creation that helps us with the creature that has hurt us. If we get bitten by a snake in Australia, we that's not necessarily the end of our life. If we get to a, doc, uh, uh, a hospital fast enough, some doctor, uh, that has anti-venom, then most snake bites can be turned around. And it is rare, getting increasingly rare, that people actually die from snake bites because there is anti-venom provided. And here in the desert, we see anti-venom provided. We see judgment by God using creatures against the Israelites. But then we see another creation coming along, something outside the Israelites coming along and providing a way of salvation. If they look up at that snake on the pole, they're then saved from death for their sin. And so we see God graciously providing a way of salvation for these Israelites in the desert. Now what can we learn from this Today, Why is Numbers 21 helpful for us to read today? Should we be bothering spending our time on such a passage? Is it something that is just a quaint story in Israelite history that we have no use for? Well, I think we can learn quite a lot from this passage. I think we can learn about our own problem with sin and the way of salvation that we can be saved from our sin and the punishment that comes for it. And so that brings me to my fourth main point this morning. You have sinned against God. Just like the Israelites sin against God, we have to acknowledge that we have sinned against God as well. We make false accusations of God just in the same way that the Israelites make in many ways as well. We make that false accusation that God is not happy with us and that he wants our death. People say that, that, oh, God just created us to send us to hell. But we know that the Bible tells us that God says, For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. 
repent and live. He says that in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32. We're meant to repent and live. God doesn't take pleasure in our death. He doesn't want to see people die. He doesn't take pleasure in that, he says there in Ezekiel. And so we should never make such accusation that God somehow gets some sick satisfaction out of seeing me suffer and then die. No, God wants to work for our good if we love him. And we can make a false accusation that God doesn't want us to enjoy life, that he doesn't want to give us the food that we would like. He may give us food. Okay, yes, we recognise he gives us some blessings. But really, life could be a whole lot better, God, than what we've currently got. And that's the problem of the Israelites. They're surviving. They're going okay. God's providing a pillar of fire at night to warm them while they're in the desert. He's providing a pillar of cloud by day to protect them from the sun's rays. They've got it pretty good. They've got an umbrella through the day. They've got warm at night when it gets very cold in the desert. They've got food, which you don't have to work for. I mean, that's, that's a pension and a half, isn't it? You don't have to work. It comes, the food's there. All you've got to do is pick it up. And the quail comes in, you don't have to work. Yet they're saying life could actually be better than what I've currently got. And every time we grumble about what God has given us in our life, we're doing the same thing. We're saying life could be better. Yes, let's face it, I do have food. I do have things in my life. But it's what the Israelites said here, miserable food. It's not as good as it could be. I'm a bit miserable with my life and what you've given me. You've given me blessings, yes, I'll admit it, but they're miserable blessings, really. And that's what we say. Anytime we grumble, anytime we're dissatisfied, we're sinning against God. We're saying, what you've done in my life, you're not, you're not really happy with me. You're not really happy about me enjoying my life. You want to make life difficult for me. That's not true. The scriptures again and again tell us that God is always working for our good. He is always working for our happiness. And the problem is, as our sinful selves, being dissatisfied with the graciousness of God towards us as sinful creatures. And so God has every right to punish us for our sin against him, for our grumbling against him again and again and again. Every person on this planet has been blessed immensely by God, even in the midst of their suffering. And let's face it, in Australia, we're a lot better off than most people. But even the people that are alive all around the planet, they are experiencing God's blessing. Every day the sunshine gets up, they're experiencing God's blessing. And yet we grumble against him, and he has a right to punish us. And that brings me to my fifth main point this morning. God will punish you. False accusations against God are unacceptable. It's defamation. That's what the Israelites were doing. They were defaming God. And that's what we do every time we grumble against God as well. We're bringing his name into disrepute. We're saying he doesn't bless us as he should. He is a bad God. That's what you're saying. And God has every right to defend himself. He is a God of justice. And he takes defamation very seriously, just like some of you would if someone started saying bad things about you. You'd take them to court. God takes you to court. And he punishes you because you are guilty of defamation. How does God punish you? Well, he can punish you in this world by giving you over to the great serpent himself. Not a serpent that comes into your community and bites you like the Israelites had, but there is a great serpent. That is Satan. 
and God gives him great power to do great harm in this world. He can't operate on his own, but God gives him permission. We see that in the book of Job. Satan asks permission, permission and God grants it. He can do great harm to people in this world. He is the serpent. He was there in the garden as a serpent and he is still alive today. And we see people handed over to Satan to do great damage. Satan is not a harmless serpent. He is a venomous serpent, like those snakes were venomous in the desert. He is a a snake that also is not just venomous, but he bites. He doesn't just have poison to destroy you. He actually uses it. He bites. He wants to inflict pain on you. And he also kills. He brings people to destruction. And in the next life, if Satan ensnares you because you have sinned against God, Romans 1 talks very clearly about God handing you over, people handing people over to further sin. You get handed over to Satan, and then in the next life you'll be punished as well. You don't just get punished in this world. You get punished in the next There is a place, a terrible place of torment called hell. Hell is a venomous place. Hell is a place that bites. Hell is a place that destroys eternally. It doesn't just kill as the snakes were killing in the desert. It kills for all eternity. And that's what God does for those who defame his name, who make false accusations against him. And he has every right to do so. Who are you as a created being? to then go and say about the creator that he is a bad God. He has every right to send everybody to eternity in hell. But thankfully, just as there was a way of salvation in the desert, there is a way of salvation today. And that brings me to my sixth main point this morning. God provided a way of salvation. We need to do what the Israelites did firstly if we want to embark on that way of salvation. What is that? We need to come to God in repentance, like the Israelites did. They came and they said, we have sinned. That's what you need to do. If you are to get right with God, you need to fess up to what you've done. You need to say, yes, I have sinned against you, O God. And then you need to do what the Israelites did and say, I need an intercessor. I need someone to pray for me. I need someone to go between me and God to make things right. He is rightly angry at me. I need some way of salvation. I've done the wrong thing. I need a way of salvation to be provided. I need someone to pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. I need someone to pray that God will take his judgment away from me. And then God in his mercy does provide a way of salvation. He provides a substitute, a way out, a snake anti-venom that can undo the damage that is done by sin in our lives. It's very interesting with snake bites, isn't it, that you need an anti-venom. You can't just suffer. If it's a venomous snake that will kill you, you can't just suffer and then restore yourself. You need something outside yourself to come be injected into you so that you can live. And it's the same with the problem that you have of sin and judgment of God hanging over your head. You can't get yourself out. You need something to come along and be injected into you, something outside yourself to help you. And what is that? Is it a snake up on a pole that you look to? Well, it's kind of close. The New Testament actually refers to this passage as a type, a prophecy of the one who would save us. 
Flip with me to page 1051, John chapter 3, verse 14. Page 1051 of your Black Church Bibles. John chapter 3, verse 14. John chapter 3, verse 14, page 1051, and we read, these are the words of Jesus, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Who is the Son of Man? Son of Man is Jesus' way of referring to himself. And that is what he was doing. What he's talking about here is him at the cross, being lifted up on a pole, being crucified, being bitten by Satan for your sin. And so if you look to Jesus, you can have the antivenom that will solve your problem of sin. You can have the punishment removed because, not because you aren't bitten. Well, that the, the judgment isn't given out, but someone else is bitten for you, and that is Christ. What you have done is seriously wrong, no doubt about it, and God cannot let injustice go. But he pours that injustice, that, that sin that you have committed, out upon Jesus Christ. Sna- Satan bites Jesus, but thankfully Jesus crushes Satan's head. Satan does indeed bruise Jesus, but Jesus crushes his head and pays the price that you deserve for your sin. How do you have that way of salvation come to you? How do you look to Jesus? I mean, the Israelites, it was easy for them, wasn't it? Because there was an actual physical pole, there was an actual physical snake, and I look up at it and it will be okay. How do we look at Jesus? I mean, he was crucified so long ago, I can't go back in time and look at him on the cross. How do I do this? Well, the passage in John tells you, John, 14, uh, John 3, verse 14, it says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. What's verse 15 then say? That everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Everyone who believes in him. If you trust Jesus Christ for the payment of your sins, you have eternal life. And this is a marvellous truth because this is a far better way of salvation than the Israelites had in the desert. They got saved from temporal death, from the death of a snake bite. You get saved from eternal death if you look to Jesus. You have eternal life, it says there in John 3, verse 15. You, instead of being punished eternally, get to dwell eternally with God where, I don't know if there's cucumbers, but there's feasting in heaven. And it will be wonderful. Yes, this, this life isn't, isn't as great as heaven will be. This is not heaven on earth. We've got to learn, though, to be content with what God has given us on earth. And look to Jesus Christ for that eternal life that we will one day experience. And so if you're not a Christian, I encourage you to do that. Are you someone who has recognised that you have sinned against God, that you have defamed God, that you have grumbled against God many times in your life. Have you repented of that sin? Have you acknowledged that you sinned? And have you looked for the way of salvation? Ask for it. And then seen that God has given a way of salvation through Jesus Christ. If you will only trust in him, 
I encourage you, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ before, do it now, don't delay, because you have venom in your blood and you are being judged. You may not feel the judgment of God heavy upon you while you live here in Australia, but you will one day after your death. You have venom. You need the anti-venom today. And the way that you get that is through Jesus, and you need to trust in him now. You need to put your faith in him. I encourage you to do that. Let's speak with our God now. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you reveal how sinful we are to us. And we thank you that you do not just do that, but you reveal to us that we deserve to be judged for our sin, that there is a knife hanging over us, that there is a snake that is ready to kill us and devour us for all eternity. Lord, we also thank you, though, that you provide a way to flee from that judgment. Not only have you revealed that we have sinned, not only have you revealed that we are being judged, but you have revealed that there is a way of salvation, and that way of salvation is Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we pray that everyone in this room this morning has looked to Jesus by faith as a payment for their sin, and so instead of having eternal judgment, we'll have eternal life where we can enjoy peace and prosperity with you and your Son, Jesus Christ, for all eternity. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.